you know, this is, excuse me, a damn fine cup of coffee. Now I'd like two eggs over hard. I know, don't tell me it's hard in the arteries, but old habits die hard. It's about as hard as I want those eggs. Bacon, super crispy, almost burned. Cremated, that's great. And I'll have the grapefruit juice just as long as those grapefruits are freshly squeezed. I'm Eddie Webb. And I'm Chris Spivey. And today we're going to have breakfast and talk about Twin Peaks here on Joinless. Welcome to part two of our special mini season digression, not still not doing Arrow yet thing of Twin Peaks. Well, we've decided actually right for the podcast, we're going to do one episode of Twin Peaks per episode of show and we're going to do all of Twin Peaks. And after that, we'll do Arrow. <laughs> it's now a Twin Peaks podcast. That's how it works, right? Twin Peaks just comes in and it takes over everything in existence for a amount of time, but it goes I, away for 25 years. To be honest, if if you had told me there was going to be a TV show that would take over this podcast, I would have put my money on Doctor Who long before Twin Peaks. But, you know, here we are. We're, we're doing that. <laughs> but that lets us use Doctor Who as a punchline for a bunch of jokes. That's true. That's true. Eventually, we will talk about Doctor Who. Uh, well, everyone talks Doctor about Doctor Who. Well, there, there are like a million Doctor Who podcasts. I'm not going to lie. And some of them are the good. Podcast, so. We need something witty in Doctor Who that has not been taken. Yeah, good luck. There's, there's, there's a lot of Doctor Who discourse. There's a lot of Twin Peaks discourse too. Um, uh, but it's uh, we're going to provide a, a different perspective in the sense that we don't really do research and we're kind of talking off the cuff. So it's a different perspective. Than, <laughs> like, you know, deep analysis. It's like, no, nah, just we watched a show and it was kind of cool, I guess. End of podcast. There we go. I think we need to change the entire name of the podcast now to like a di- uh, damn fine cup of coffee. Damn fine cup of coffee. That's our Twin Peaks cast. I don't even like coffee. That's the best part. It's the best part of I, all this. I, well, I like it enough <laughs> for both of us. And then we could just talk about like the different types of coffee and we not talk about Twin Peaks, but we start the show with the Twin Peaks music. And each week is talking about a different type of coffee bean specifically. And then we branch out into sequels. Okay. So, so, so we're following along at home. Season three of Genreless was superheroes. We digressed into Twin Peaks, then di- digressed again further into being a Twin Peaks podcast, and then a further digression into being a coffee podcast disguised as a Twin Peaks podcast, disguised as a superhero podcast. <laughs> Basically. And anyone that knows me is not at all surprised by that. I mean, I'm not surprised. I'm just kind of resigned at this point. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's wrong. You, you want to know what you are? What am I? Resigned! Resigned. That is what you are. You got to hit that last part. <laughs> I, I I can never aspire to be as cool as Patrick B. Ewan. That's just it's just my lot in life. I don't think many of us can. All right, but <laughs> it's true. We're um, we're here to talk about season one of Twin Peaks. Yes, and well, first half. Uh, um, well, yeah. I mean, it's so Twin Peaks was kind of odd in the sense that uh, the first season was only eight episodes long, uh, and then it was renewed. Uh, and the second season was a more, more traditional 22, 24, something like that. Um, uh, so this is kind of a pretty fast season for, for an American television section. So it feels honestly a lot more like either British television or modern drama in the sense of how kind of a little more fast paced um, for Twin Peaks. We talked before about Twin Peaks intentionally slow, but for season one, this episode, season two, trust me gets much draggier 
<clears throat> but um, so and this kind of does lead to a conclusion. It's just not you know the conclusion anybody expected, but it does kind of go somewhere. Well, Mark Frost was sort of writing the show at this point because of different things and had left the season eight, the episode eight, when we get there full of cliffhangers, like yep. that was the point to try to get renewed. Like, let me give you this, 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 this now cancel, cancel us. See what happens. Right. I, I do have thoughts. We'll get to, uh, to episode eight. Um, uh, cause I have thoughts about how that's structured. Uh, but you're right. Um, this is, if you're looking at it from a, wow, Dave Lynch is a weird guy and I'm expecting a bunch of weird stuff in the show. This is actually not, peak weird season wise all things considered um just i don't want to say grounded because it's not the right word um uh, but it's a lot more character driven i guess is a better way of putting it uh um you know the characters have, 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 have a little more depth and they're trying to uh, actually have coherent throughs of their character arcs um but it does have twists and turns i mean it's still twin peaks don't get me wrong um uh, but it's uh it's interesting. It, it, it's an interesting season to look at in retrospect. Uh, anything you want to talk about season one with before we kind of dive in? So I know that we we skipped an episode so we can move on to episode two of the season. Or So one yeah. of the things about Twin Peaks is the numbering is still really weird, which is yeah. also specifically why we're saying the name of the episodes. But in the previous episode, I want to say, was that Traces to Nowhere? I think um, so, Yeah. <clears throat> they sort of restated some of the principal stuff from the pilot uh, Northwest passage. And one of the things they did though, is they were like rebuilding parts of the station, the police station when you come in. And that's because the original sets had been like torn down and they wanted to have a reason why things look different. Oh. You can see why they're different, which I pointed out simply because it was like a, an interesting factoid that I remembered from some other podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, it's it's less common these days just because of how fast shows get greenlit uh, because of the age of streaming where people are racing to get a good TV show. Uh, but until recently, recently, it would be years between a pilot being filmed and the rest of the show being filmed. So, yeah, it's not uncommon for sets to be struck and sometimes damaged or lost in that process. So that's not entirely surprising. But it's interesting that they had a diegetic reason for all oh, this. Why it looks different. Because I think it was about a year between like the pilot and the first episode. And a lot of the cast that they got originally sort of signed on because they didn't think they were going to do anything else. And then they're called back about a year later to like resume their roles. Uh, for instance, like Piper Laurie was, a, I think, a big get, a big get for them. I want to say Joan Chin was also a big get for them mm -hmm. and some other key people like that. Then they shuffled in some other random people still like. Leo, who is a casting director's like son or nephew, right, and some other folks that like Lynch just likes the look and vibe of them and wrote around them. And certainly, I think that adds to the kind of quirky nature of the show and the fact that some of these people are—they're clearly not professional actors. But that doesn't mean they're bad. It's more that they're not the kind of tradition classically pretty or polished people you expect to see in this kind of show and i think that adds us a lot again i think that it kind of grounds the show a bit more even though these are strange characters because they look like normal people because most of them are just normal people uh so it, it feels real in a way that i think is really really interesting and so that's also peggy lipton who plays norma who i think lynch specifically wrote a role just so she would be in the show or mark frost because she was in the uh mobs mod squad from the 60s and they really wanted oh, wow. her to like come in so there's lots of little touches like that that they did to bring in people they specifically just wanted to work with 
That's really cool. Uh, again, I mentioned this last episode, but I, I, I have mentioned again, we also are sadly skipping one of the best scenes of, uh, which was actually Laura Palmer's funeral, um, where her father throws himself into her grave and then bounces out of it <laughs> because the casket, the device that lowers the casket and malfunctions. Um, that's really, I mean, you probably find a clip of it on YouTube, frankly, it's, it's worth just watching that scene. Cause it's the, the perfect blend of melodrama and humor that this show just should not be able to pull off and somehow does. Uh, I guess my, my last point before we can really move on is also the, mix of professional actors and non-actors works incredibly well because it's also a parody of a soap opera and in soap operas you can really never go too big and they always have that weird sort of like layer of something is constantly off and that yep. definitely adds to that vibe for Twin Peaks True and you also mentioned that um, uh, uh, Lynch is prone to keeping gaffes in uh, to make dialogue sound more authentic, and so I'm sure that also adds to it. Is like, is um, I'm just, I'm guessing some of these less pressure actors are probably stumbling over their lines a bit more. And if Lynch is prone to keep those in because they sound interesting, then yeah, it's going to give that level of oh, these are real people because they, they stumble and make mistakes. Um, but also simultaneously, we're not used to seeing that on TV, so that does feel weird. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's go into. Uh, Episode two or three in your numbering system, uh, Zen or the skill to catch a killer. Uh, so we talked about Ben's brother, which is uh, Jerry. He arrives in Twin Peaks uh, and he comes to visit uh, One-Eyed Jacks, which is a casino and brothel that the Horn brothers own across the Canada-U.S. border. Uh, and that's something I want to talk about in a bit. But the fact that Twin Peaks is situated close to the Canadian border is actually a pretty big component of how the show unfolds. Uh, uh, Josie uh, discovers uh, that Catherine's be keeping two sets of ledgers. She's been kind of suspecting that something was going on there. Uh, and so that you know, th there's a, f a false set of books that presented to people as opposed to the ones that are actually keeping track of the, the, the mills finances. Uh, Sarah discovers that her husband Legalin's grieving has become increasingly unhinged. This is, going to be a ongoing thread for most of the show honestly Leland's grieving um uh bobby uh is in the process of buying cocaine from leo uh discovers that leo knows shelly's having an affair uh even the recap sounds like a soap opera it's like someone's <laughs> buying drugs and realizes that they're having an affair with this woman i mean that's again very soap opera uh, Cooper takes the police into the woods uh, and relates a dream he had years earlier about a Tibetan investigative technique. Spoiler, not actually a Tibetan investigative technique. Uh, and basically, he reads the name of suspects, and every time he's read, he throws a stone in a glass bottle, and if the bottle breaks, the suspect is worth investigating. I want to come back to the scene, but just leave that there for the moment. Uh, this, this technique, and I use that in quotes, suggests that Leo and Jacoby are suspects. Uh, we meet uh, FBI forensic specialist Albert Rosenfield, who is a jerk, uh, but he's very good at his job, and he arrives to Twin Peaks to perform Laura's autopsy. Uh, Cooper has another dream about a one-armed man named Mike and a malevolent spirit named Bob who vows to quote-unquote kill again. In the dream, and this is probably the most iconic scene in Twin Peaks, 
An older Cooper sits in a red room with a dwarf and a woman who resembles Laura. They speak in a jarring, disjointed manner, and Laura whispers something in Cooper's ear. Cooper wakes up, calls Crewman, and declares he knows who the killer is. A lot happens in this episode. And sometimes my arms bend backwards. Sometimes my arms bend backwards. So I want to. So I'm going to jump to the middle. I'm going to go back to the the rock throwing scene because until this episode, Cooper's been kind of positioned as the typical detective in these shows, the 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 one of a million Sherlock Holmes style ripoffs of the cleverest guy in the room dynamic, right? Uh, he's quirky. He's a little odd. He's almost unnaturally cheerful, but he's just really smart. And then he reveals, no, no, no. It's not that he's super smart or uses logic or deduction or forensics. He uses dream logic to uh, solve his murders. And in Twin Peaks, this is a perfectly natural way to resolve things. <laughs> I, I, All right. I, I know what you're saying and what you're getting at, but... The fact that Cooper came in and appeared to be a completely normal person at first and actually successfully pointed out things before he revealed like this other aspect of his personality is probably what allowed the law enforcement to go along with him. Not only that he has like jurisdiction over them now, but he's established the accuracy of what he's doing beforehand. No, right. And that's what's actually, I mean, I mean, I'm, those big mild air bog, but actually, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in, in Twin Peaks. This actually makes sense, right? Dreams as a way of investigating things in the show. We're now at a point where it's like, okay, that actually tracks on some level because a lot of the show has a dreamlike logic to it. Uh, um, and again, we keep going back to this well, but it's important to re- reestablish. Soap operas use dreams a lot as a plot device. Anyway, so using dreams as a plot device in a mystery show, again, seems like jarring uh, uh, juxtaposition, but here it works. And then we have this, but I mean, so it's hard to really do dreams justice, but we have two different approaches to it and they both actually work. Obviously we had the last scene, which I'm sure we'll get to in a minute. Uh, and that's kind of the more traditional way of showing dreams, which is let's just show some weird shit on the screen and then say it's a dream. Uh, but this is an interesting way of doing it because uh, it's the how do we how do we make investigation interesting? This is a problem a lot of Sherlock Holmes movies and TV shows have, frankly. Was like, how do you make investigation interesting? Because really investigation is looking at stuff and talking to people. And you have to make that compelling on the screen. And for all of my problems with the uh, BBC Sherlock show, they did a really fantastic job of finding visual ways to make his deductions interesting to look at on the screen. This is a different way of doing that, which is the, I'm going to throw rocks at a bottle and watching how, how those rocks is a certain amount of tension. It's like, okay, we say a name. He's going to take a moment. He's going to take a breath, say the name and throw the rock. So there's almost like a suspense of, is this going to matter? And we're so, bound up in this weirdly long scene. There's, there's a lot of time spent on this scene. But we, we become well, invested Lynch in it. Lynch lingers. Like, yeah. Lynch is not afraid of letting a scene breathe, and this one definitely is breathing. But they, we, you, but you get caught up in it. It's the, okay, which of these names? It's a fairly long list of names. Uh, and then you have the great kind of fake out of, um, with, with Jacoby's name, 
where the rocket ship bounces off the bottle. And they go, okay, what does that mean? And so Cooper is so obviously making this shit up on the spot. <laughs> it's like, um, uh, uh, just, just mark it down. Uh, personal interest. Okay, sure. That, that's a great way to compromise that. That scene is magic because you have the main core cast there when you mm-hmm. look at everyone from the show. And it's each of them interacting in their own personality in ways to like benefit the movement of the case. And all still looking to Cooper for insight and how to lead and what to do next. And it's so weird that there are other parts that don't make sense, but you you kind of forget about them in case. Like one thing that Queen Mix is great about is that it'll, it'll throw you some massively weird stuff. And then there's other things that don't make sense underneath of that that you just miss. Like how in the hell do you get a chalkboard in the woods? <sighs> Uh, I mean, it's like, how did, how did that even get there? There's just a chalkboard in the woods. Sure, why not? Uh, <laughs> but it's like, what? But you don't think about that because you're, you're wrapped up in the bigger, what the hell's going on here? But it's also reinforced how this could be a valid method because you already have Cooper who's said Bobby didn't do it and some other people didn't do it early on. And when he throws the rocks, they don't hit the bottle how they're supposed to, which you could lead into the, like, that is because Cooper's method is right or... You could take the more cynical approach. He obviously threw them differently because he said they weren't guilty. Right, right. And another layer of this scene that is great, and uh, Cooper in general, is the late 80s, early 90s tendency to for uh, white people to try something weird and assign it to Tibet or, or the Far East or, or other kind of quote-unquote mystical cultures for shit that they just made up. And this is peak that because it's like, okay, they don't have bottles like that in Tibet. You know what I mean? It's like none of this stuff tracks when you actually think about it for half a second. But because like, oh, I have this Tibetan technique and all the other people go, okay, sure, that makes sense. Because that's that's very much, I mean, the culture at the time, I think there's still a fair amount of that happening now. But I mean, it's another moment of the zeitgeist of like, uh, uh, you know, yoga meditation or whatnot it's like you know trying to assign something uh that was created in one country to another country to make it seem more valid because that country seems mystical and it also is the fact that cooper is our protagonist and we as viewers are inclined to assume that he is being accurate and correct in everything he's doing and it doesn't necessarily occur to people that we are not cooper in this scenario we're more like uh, Andy, <laughs> yeah, who is like watching in awe and may or may not be completely believe it. And so that's like should be more of our viewpoint if we're approaching this. Right. And that leads to uh, we touched this a little bit with the prisoner, too. But like there are, is some debate, not a lot, about if Cooper is actually the protagonist of Twin Peaks, uh, because obviously the movie very much frames him as that. Uh, and again, the first episode, which you, you said is kind of a recap of the first ep- of the movie anyway, so it's more extension of that. But with this episode, Cooper is now firmly in the category of the weird, opaque characters that are that this town is populated with. So it's like, okay, Cooper is not quite the clear protagonist that we thought he was. 
Um, and, and you've argued, and I agree with you, that at the Sheriff, Sheriff Truman is probably a better protagonist for the show because he is the one that's closest to the audience viewpoint of what they think is real and grounded. Uh, but even then, Truman just goes along with a lot of this stuff in, in a way that's like, you know, he's just like, okay, yeah, sure, we'll do this. I got nothing else. To, I have no other, nothing else to go with. So sure, that might as well try this. And well, Truman is also wrapped up in some of the different shenanigans in town because he is having an affair with Jose, which I don't think we discussed in the pilot, but it ends when the ending scenes is like the two of them meeting up to have relations. That's true. But that's, that's a subplot that frankly hardly ever comes up in the show. Um, Josie has other subplots, uh, but her relationship with Truman just doesn't seem to come up that often, frankly. But uh, that's to say, it's like a, a back burner thing. So it's something that you know about Truman, which implies that maybe he's done some other stuff, but there's nothing that really ever detracts from his character throughout the course of the show. Right. Um, I do want to go back to the Canadian border thing because uh, I, I lived in Northern Ohio. And so this is actually something that uh, was very ingrained in my growing up. And over the years I've realized is not maybe a common American experience. Uh, but the idea of going across the border to do X things is pretty common in some of the extremely Northern parts of the U S uh, um, when I was growing up, for example, it would be buying fireworks or buying certain kinds of booze. Uh, you go across the border, you, you, you get those things and you bring them back uh, because the way I understand the law works is that um, uh, for a long time, until recently, I think it's actually changed recently, but for a long time, you did not require a passport to cross the U.S.-Canadian border. And any if you brought things that were prescribed from Canada into the U.S., as long as you're not intending to resell them, it was considered a misdemeanor and was either very minor fined or just flat out ignored. Uh, so effectively, it wasn't illegal, some of these things in certain parts of the U.S. because of the way the relationship we had with, with Canada. So this sets up a situation where you can have something that is explicitly illegal in a U.S. show, like like owning a casino and brothel. And everyone in the show is aware that the Horns own One-Eyed Jacks. Uh, or at least it's not, it's not, it's an open secret. It's not, it's not, well, several characters remark on this, that, that they're, or let me phrase that. Okay, no, you're right. The ownership is not well known, but the fact that One-Eyed Jacks is a place that lots of people in town go to is, is yes. open secret. That, that was more what I was saying. You're, because you're right. I, I remember later on this wedge because of a plot point. Um, so their ownership is, is is secret, but people go to go to and from there. People are very aware of what the place is and what it does, um, even though it is not officially in town. Uh, and it's interesting to me that there are a couple of lines in this episode and a couple of lines in another episode that talk about the fact that it's in Canada. But for all intents and purposes, it is in Twin Peaks. It is very yeah. easy for people to go to and from this place and become that's again, a plot point later on. Uh, so, well, it's, it's also a, a crucial plot point just in the show itself because it's low. The closeness to the other state is why Renette Pulaski could cross the state line, which is why Cooper could come to investigate the case. So right. that's why like almost in the very first thing of the show, they talk to you about how close it is to Canada and some other states to let you know that it's sort of that central hub that you could easily pop from place to place in. Uh, 
Right. But if you aren't aware of <clears throat> living in that kind of space, and particularly at this point of relationship between two countries, it might seem weird. It's like, how can they just casually cross country borders like that without you know, passports or visas or whatnot? And that, that was that we had a very close relationship. And to be fair, we at one point in time, we had some relationship with Mexico. Um, where you could just cash into Mexico and, and similar things like you'd cross into Mexico to get things like certain kinds of tequila or whatnot. Um, and also, you know, Mexican brothels were a thing. So, I mean, like there, there was a certain point where we had in North America, this kind of, of close relationship that has over time decayed. Uh, so if you're looking at this either without knowing that, or, uh, just our younger watcher, it might seem really strange that people can just pop back and forth so fast but that is very much a thing that could have happened in the 80s so are you telling us right now on semi-recorded air that you were in fact one of the masterminds i want to say behind the great maple syrup robbery of was it like the late 80s or late 90s that yes you eddie webb were part of that ring of syrup nabblers so i wasn't but that is an amazing thing you brought up because people it's like oh it's funny and maple syrup that's someone's like no it was actually a big goddamn deal because it was yeah. the maple it was the maple syrup reserve of Canada. Um and like it is the one of their major national exports. And so like there it was worth a shit ton of money to the right people. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember it being a big deal when I grew up. I was like, oh yeah, maple syrup. I was like, well, Jesus. But I mean I lived I where I lived, I lived in Lorraine, Ohio, uh, which is right on the border of Lake Erie. And uh we would constantly get like Canadian quarters, uh, you know, mixed up interchange, which were terrible when you were a kid in the eighties because they do not fit in arcade machines. Hmm. So you have basically worthless quarters. I mean, yes, you could theoretically spend them for 25 cents worth of, of value, but you cannot put them in arcade machines and therefore they are junk, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot play Pac-Man with this garbage. All right, so your your days of robbing maple syrup aside, the <laughs> when the episode opens, and I still chuckle even when I saw it this time, when um, Jerry breaks in f- to the very awkward dinner that Ben is having with his family. <laughs> yes. And it's, the, it's the fact of how he breaks in with the sandwich and how he's making love to his sandwich. But then you stop to think that, yep, there are Ben and Jerry right there. And you want a little ice cream, but it never really occurs to you to go get it. I So... I had the thought when I watched the episode and I refused to look it up because we don't do research in the show, but did the Ben and Jerry's ice cream show, uh, brand predate the show? I'm fairly certain not? that it was okay. an intentional pun. I thought so. I thought it, cause it felt like a pun. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's and good. So that the, the joking aside of that it is, it is interesting that when Jerry comes in and he sort of tells you about where he's been, and from where he's been, automatically removes him, if you believe him, from being one of the suspects, the killer of Laura. Because he's like, I've been over in France doing all this other stuff during this amount of time. And Twin Peaks was supposedly happening, like, each episode was a day of life in Twin Peaks. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. It, I mean, it, it makes sense, because most episodes roughly start with Cooper having breakfast and roughly end with Cooper going to bed. So I could see that logic. I just never really thought about it until you pointed it out. It's... It's held to it about 70, 80%. So it's sure it's like, this right. is our premise, but we're also in an age where we don't really record TV and anything else and we mess up. Who's going to know? <laughs> right. Because this will never be seen again by anybody. Yeah. It's one of the things I love then about you older television. you should have television. shot it on beautiful film quality recordings and then like 
have us be able to go back and look at and still think, man, that is some beautiful footage. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's okay. So let's talk about this scene at the end. Um, But wait, wait. What about Sarah and Leland and, and Bobby and his buddy Snake in the woods with Leo? Like this, this is Leo's one of Leo's best scenes throughout this entire entire series. We cannot overlook it. Leo in the woods talking about how he needs new shoes and he's got like a shotgun and he makes him run to catch a football. That is like some serious tension and terror. Like that is the first, I think, real taste of terror that we as viewers see. Not that we have to experience it secondhand by like Laura and Renette, but like we watch this occur. I mean, I will say that. Uh, um, you, You're right. I mean, like... Uh- I, I said last episode that that Leo's a piece of shit, and this episode really reinforces that. Um, uh, but one of the things that it ends up doing, which is interesting, is it almost immediately turns Bobby from another character we hate to a character. Oh, actually, maybe yeah. Like, first, like okay, he's cheating on his girlfriend, and he's kind of a jerk, and he's being you know, I mean, the Cooper and all this stuff. And so he, he, he has suspect written all over him. And then this episode, we start to see, Oh, okay. Well, he's actually dating somebody who's trying to get him, get her away from Leo, who's a piece of shit. And, you know, we, over time we learned that Laura's not great either. Um, and so again, already Bobby becomes this more interesting character as a result of that. So that, that's a fair scene to, to, to point out. Um, and Leo is just, cartoonishly evil but the show needs something you need someone like that right you need someone in the show who's just such the obvious suspect which it is so obvious so then that you're fairly certain he is not the killer just from how over the top bad and evil he is because that would be too simple to figure out right but you you need some i mean from a mystery perspective you need someone that everyone in the show goes well why isn't it him it's obviously him so the detective can look clever right and from a soap opera perspective, you need someone who's so obviously evil that they're constantly stirring the pot of the relationships and character dynamics. So when you blend those genres together, you have someone like Leo who, who's trying to do both roles and frankly does a good job. He, he looks like a murder suspect. And also he is the character who keeps mo- at least uh, uh, Bobby and Shelley um, motivating and going further. Uh, but even then, Bobby and Shelly, as results of their trying to get out of under the thumb of Leo, then take actions which impact other people. And so it's a nice – there's a lot of kind of pinball happening from Leo as a center, which is interesting. And then coupled with that, in Cooper's dream that we're going to get to, it talks about Mike and Bob. And you have Bobby and Mike right here engaging and interacting with Leo, which right. then maybe shines a light that, in fact – Cooper may have been wrong if these are the actual killers. And while Bobby isn't able to confront Leo in that moment, he has done a lot of shady, evil stuff himself. And uh, uh, since we're we're, we're leading into the final episode, but but one of the things that this episode does then is it sets a ground rule for the show, which is that dreams are true question mark right um like because we have the middle scene of like okay i i, I had a dream that I could do this thing and he does the thing and he get, and it gives him relatively accurate information we do over the course of the show find out that 
Leo is someone that Cooper definitely wants to talk to, uh, and Jacoby is involved in some level. How they are involved is, is unclear and changes, but the rock throwing does point him in the right direction. And then we have this final scene where he gets information, like you said, it's like it's 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 accurate but misleading. And All right, this is the, this is the scene you're waiting for. Please, please proceed. Right. Well, um, um, and, and so like we have this extremely surreal scene. I mean, the, the fact that this show is moved. <laughs> Chris is wearing a shirt that is relevant to this. Um, and we have a scene that is explicitly surreal. That this show has been kind of dancing around how surreal it is, uh, and it gives information that is true. Uh. It, it and it's it's fascinating because from a mystery perspective, this is the worst thing you could do, <laughs> right? It's the I'm just going to dance and mocking us some information into the detectives' heads, and he solves the case from that. And it, 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 it's 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 terrible writing. It works here because this is not entirely mystery. I said before, who killed Laura Palmer is not actually the core question of the show. Um. I think we have to talk more about the rest of the show before we can actually address what the actual core question of the show is, but it's not really who killed Laura Palmer. Uh, so spoiling and accelerating the mystery of who killed Laura Palmer doesn't actually ruin the dynamic tension of the show. So on that one front, this scene feels like it should be a terrible idea and ends up being great. But the other thing is, and I don't, again, I didn't do the research on this, so you might know better. It feels like the scene was recorded in reverse and all the actors read their lines backwards. Is that right? Uh, I used to know that, but I don't remember now. Okay. Because it feels like the reason why they're, they're, they're talking so weird is I think they're actually saying their lines backwards and then recording it backwards and playing it forwards. I, I would love to tell you I remember, but I don't. I I've just love this scene. Because uh, the only reason why I think that is because uh, uh, there's an episode of Red Dwarf where it's a similar premise where the entire planet works backwards and they do that same trick in that episode and it sounds kind of similar and it looks kind of similar which is what makes me think it might be that technique uh, but regardless this is this films. is the iconic scene for Twin Peaks yeah and it was filmed in 1990 so there's no CGI there's no digital enhancements none of that it was all practical effects and it is far the pun uh, it is peak surreal weird like like we've now the unease that we feel as the audience has now actually broken through the screen is now broken in the fourth wall the, the unease has now actually distorted the show on some level it's confined to the dream so it still follows the narrative guidelines which is great uh, but I mean the, the show is now explicitly doing weird shit and it does it in a way that is still comprehensible. So like, you know, the lines don't make sense, but they are understandable as English. It's not just gibberish, even though it feels like gibberish, right? It feels like complete nonsense. Like, no, it's only mostly nonsense. Uh, so, I mean, yes, you do get lines like um, uh, your chewing gum has lost all flavor. Uh, but, you know, you also have Laura admitting that basically, no, you, you freeze me for my cousin, and we do meet her cousin that looks just like her pretty soon after this. So that's just, it's just explicitly true. 
I, I love this scene so much, I don't even know where to start or where to, to digress into it. But it is the pinnacle of what Twin Peaks does. Like, this scene alone is why the show, I think, continued on to the end of, like, its first season. And it got a second season. Regardless of all the plot hooks that Frost dropped in the eighth episode, people wanted to know about, like, this little man, the red room, why Laura's arms bent backward when my chewing gum was going to come back into style. They wanted right. to know like this mystery. And this is an episode that Lynch came back to direct. And you can tell that it was directed by Lynch. Oh yeah. Because it has all of his flair to it. And then he would go off again. I think he was working on a Laura Dern movie at the time. Wild at heart. Was that it? Okay. And uh, this also reminds me a lot of, um, I've already forgotten the name of the episode before Fallout from The Prisoner, but um, the one where it was just two and six, you know, but again, a simple set, a couple of props. Absolute zero. Absolute zero, thank you. Um, it's just a simple set, a couple of props, a couple, a few actors just acting like crazy. A uh, much shorter scene, obviously. It's not a whole 50-minute episode, but there are similarities of like, they're, they don't have a lot to work with. They could, all they have is their uh, acting ability. And in a couple of actors' cases, they can't even really move because of the way it was filmed. Uh, so it's just their voice. And again, their voice, at least everyone at Cooper's voice is distorted in some way. So there's a lot of things that are getting in the way of their performance in a way. So by reducing the sets and reducing the props, that helps to kind of balance things out a bit. So there's nothing else distracting you, you know, just like you kind of pay more attention to the performance because there's, there's a layer on top of it. Um, and it, again, worse actors would have made that scene just goofy. Uh, the fact that these are three really talented actors are really just hit for the bleachers for it. And it shows and, and it's there. It is melodramatic but it is not over the top which is the right balance for a show like this uh and it just like you said it is like the iconic scene it really i mean we're, we're already like 38 minutes in we're still talking about this this scene but i mean it, you can't overstate it i mean you're right this is the shit that this is the scene everyone talks about because this is the scene that made everyone realize twin peaks was something special and you're complimenting the the greatness of the actors. I want to point out that the little man, who I don't know if we ever get his name. I have to look it up later. It was, I want to say, a scientist or someone that worked at NASA that came to Lynch to audition for, to be wow. in a rock, like a Johnny Rocket or Bottle Rocket movie that Lynch wanted to make that never gets made. Whole mm -hmm. studio, other debacle. And the actress that plays Laura was more of a model that Lynch, and this is like, I want to say one of her first acting roles. Really? Because she has a confidence that is amazing for someone who's for the first gig. And I'm not going to say anything. It's not their acting ability, but it is their acting ability coupled with Lynch's masterful skill of being able to capture all of that. Agreed. Agreed. Made this perfect. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it is definitely the intersection of a lot of those. Again, similar to to uh, Absolute Zero, where um, the, the cinematography we didn't talk about it much then, but also really helps to sell that. Um, but it, it, it's definitely a moment where all the pieces have to work. It's such a, a, a risky scene. 
that all the pieces have to work perfectly or it all falls apart. And in anyone's hands besides Lynch, it has a real danger of that. But Lynch is so used to these kinds of risky scenes that to him, it was probably just, oh yeah, sure, come in, knock it out, do it. And before we move on to the the next episode, I'm, I'm sure you want to, this is the first episode where um, Invitation to Love is in the show. Yes, yes, Invitation to Love. Like, this is where I wanted to save our talk about the soap opera that's within a soap opera that's a parody of the soap opera. And so, it parallels go actions going on in the show itself if you watch them watching the show. Yes. Um, there's a later episode where that becomes more explicit. Uh, but... Um, Imitation of Love is almost like a Greek chorus in the sense that it is – it, it does two things. On the one hand, it is it, – it establishes how weird Twin Peaks is because everyone in town is obsessed with this show no matter who they are. And it's a show that apparently nobody else in the U.S. gets. It, it's just this weird kind of local soap opera, which makes it even more kind of cheap and tawdry. But you're right, by juxtaposing what's happening on Twin Peaks with Invitation to Love, it's quietly reinforcing, no, seriously, this is a soap opera. I mean, call it what you want to, but this is a soap opera. And we're almost satirizing soap operas as a result. Because um, Invitation to Love is... Someone on YouTube actually has uploaded all of the footage we have of Invitation to Love. <laughs> and if you just watch it in isolation... It's terrible. It's bad. It's not good at all. But that's not the point of it, right? The point of it is it's supposed to be so bad that it's that melodrama I was talking about. It's too melodramatic. But you need that because, first of all, you're going to see it in short clips and through a television screen. But you need that to kind of juxtapose the the slightly more ground the Twin Peaks. So, like, it's the, okay, yeah, this is weird, but it's nothing compared to what's on the TV that's happening in that scene. So you have this weird moment where the, the TV is almost acting like a, a, a chorus telling the audience, nope, this is soap opera. These are things that happen in soap operas, so it's okay because this is what we're doing here. But the fact that it's a soap opera telling you this adds a level of sur surrealism to the nature of it because it's breaking the fourth wall to make to lay the tropes of the show bare in a way. And, and this was wild. almost like a solely Frost creation too. Yeah. Uh, you would think it would be a lynching thing, but it's not. In fact, apparently Lynch really hated this. Mm -hmm. And so, but it works so well with everything else that Lynch and Frost are doing together that it makes this. That's why I say this entire first season is Lynch and Frost working together. It takes the yeah. best of both of them and elevates it while eliminating some of the worst aspects of both of them. Agreed. Yep. It is a good synthesis. Okay, are we ready to move on? Yeah. <laughs> For two minutes in, we've got one episode done. Like I said, we could. This is going to be the the uh, damn fine coffee podcast, and each episode yeah. is one episode of Twin Peaks. Honestly, it's going to have to be. Uh, okay, so Cooper's dreams. Um, so the police search uh, Jacques' apartment. Uh, Jacques is um, one of the dealers at One Eye Jacks, uh, and they find Leo's bloodstained shirt and a CD magazine. Uh, where Laura and Renat advertise sexual services. Uh, it's fine. They find uh, pictures of a red-curtained log cabin, which recalls Cooper's dream at the end of the episode we just talked about, and he postulates the cabin might be connected to the murder. Uh, in counseling with Jacoby, uh, Bobby breaks down and admits that Laura was psychologically unstable and wanted to die. 
Uh, Maddie meets James and Donna and agrees to help investigate a hiding place Laura mentions. Uh, Audrey spies on Ben and Catherine discovering their plan uh, about the, the mill. No. Uh, Audrey spies on Ben and Catherine. Yeah, yeah, that's about the mill. Um, and later gains employment at the perfume counter where Laura and Renette worked. Cooper and the police meet the eccentric uh, Margaret Slanterman, who's also known as the log lady, who <laughs> claims her apparently sentient tree log saw two men with Laura and Renette the night before the murder. Uh, later, they find Jacques' cabin, discovering the bird and a broken poker chip from One-Eyed Jacks. Uh, ben meets with Josie, revealing they have been scheming behind Catherine's back. Uh, Hank Jennings, uh, husband of Norma Jennings, uh, who is Ed's secret lover and the owner of the Double R Diner, he's paroled and comes out claiming to be uh, – he's, he's going to turn on a new leaf and, and do better. But then he also uh, threatens Leo, asserting his position as the leader of the drug trade in Twin Peaks. Uh, Cooper returns to his hotel room and finds Audrey naked in his bed. And that's where the episode ends. Uh, and again, this is like soap opera. Like, there's, like, there's a million subplots happening. Uh, but um, this is the introduction of the Log Lady, who's, again, one of the more iconic, weird characters of the show. And again, with the, the, the logic of Twin Peaks, her she claims her log witnessed something, and the testimony she gives is accurate. The log did, in fact, is a credible witness in this show. Do you, you want to start with her, or do you want to start at the first, top of the episode? I'm, I'll start at the top. I, I wanted to call out because I mean, I, I, I wanted to bring it just because it, when most people think about Twin Peaks, the, the most the two characters you mentioned are Cooper and the Log Lady. So once I guess this is her premiere, and the Log Lady is a important part of the mystery. Which, funnily enough, she is not an actress. She is actually someone that usually works behind the scenes. And this was a, a a joke, I think, between Lynch and a couple other people in like some other movie, and they Lynch brought it into the show as a real thing. <laughs> it, it it has the feel of this is meant to be just one one episode, and then everyone loved it, and they just kept bringing her back. Uh, but okay, so we start at the top. Um, the the uh, uh, Leo's bloodstained shirt and the magazine, um, where Laura and Renette advertised. Uh, basically uh, prostituted themselves. And so now we're learning to point that Laura was absolutely... Actually, a lot of this episode is Laura was not the person everyone thought she was. Um, it, start, it starts here. It's like, no, she she was she, she sold her services. Um, and I think... Is it this episode or later on that the reason why that's all there is because Leo was actually uh, partying and, and I think had sex with Laura right before she died. I want to say that's the next episode where we okay. also get... The, the slow-mo rendition of Bite the Bullet, baby. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, uh, but then also, like I said, uh, uh, in there they find pictures of the log cabin with red curtains. So the blending of dream logic and mystery logic is starting to reach uh, a fever pitch at this point. So it's like, yes, the thing that was in his dream in episode two is an actual clue here in episode six. Woods and you also go back to when you remember in the dream, Laura, in fact, kisses Cooper and Cooper mm -hmm. sort of smiled. And there's that weird sort of almost exchange that you would see between someone offering like a service and a customer more than someone that's just intimate for other reasons. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, um, actually the scene with Bobby, I've mentioned before, 
Bobby starts to change the character. And this is another point where um, it's not textual. It's more subtextual. I think later episodes spell this out, but it very much reads like Bobby was abused by Laura. And a lot of the way he acts suddenly makes a lot more sense. He, he had a secret girlfriend because he was afraid of what Laura would do to him. Um, he is extremely erratic and nervous by investigating him because he kind of did want Laura to die. And he knew, she knew that she wanted to die. Uh, there's a lot going on. And, and, and actually, we haven't talked about this. Jacoby is a weird moment because again, he's a quirky character. He dresses strangely. He has red and blue glasses. Um, he's a terrible psychiatrist ethically. Uh, but he genuinely gets people to open up in a way that no other character can do in the show, except for maybe Cooper. And people tell him very important things disturbingly quickly. But again, it's TV. So you have to get going this stuff. Um, but Bobby is just straight up confessing a lot to him. And it's, it, it's, it's, we're now seeing the show. I think again, this is this is very much. I think uh, you're saying before about uh, Mark Frost writing to a degree because this is that Hill Street Blues element of there's another twist, another there's there's another layer. The, the character you, you you thought you saw isn't really the character you really know. Um, that was something that made Hill Street Blues such a dynamic show at the time, and so we're seeing that writing again. We're like, oh, this character's secretly this, and then there's a whole new layer under top of that. All right. Since you since you brought him up, let's let's take a minute and dive into Jacoby because we didn't really discuss him in the other episodes. Where even when Cooper shows up and they're going to go investigate the body, Jacoby was excitedly trying to go and investigate the body with him. He like trapped him down in a hallway, and then just his style, his approach is all very unique. And then you sort of discover that he knew. Laura's dark secrets and Laura had been sharing them with him and he had been enjoying them more than a therapist should in some aspects. Yes. Almost like he was addicted to her stories about what she was doing. And this is uh, again, um, we're, we have a very different perspective of mental health now in 2023. Um, in the early nineties, therapists were seen as, con artists and charlatans, frankly, uh, pop culture. Most of them were distrusted, uh, even though that was a point where mental health was getting some more momentum, but it was still seen as something that you went to a therapist if you were a, a weak person. You went to a therapist if you uh, were like a severely damaged individual, but casual people didn't go to therapists. You just, you just made it work. And so this is a character who's written to play into that to some degree. It's, it's the, the, he looks psychologists are all evil. Um, you know, they're all out to get you. They're all going to use your secrets against you. Uh, but what's interesting is that yes, he's highly unethical and, and he doesn't get much better as a character throughout the show, but he genuinely does seem to care about his patients. It's just what he does with that care is suspect, but like he genuinely is trying to help Bobby here. Uh, um, what he does on information is, again suspect but I mean, in, in the moment in this scene he's really genuinely trying to help Bobby and that's interesting to me yes um, 
while we're discussing the Briggs, uh, a, a shout out for uh, Major Briggs, who <laughs> eventually leaves Twin Peaks to go join the Stargate program. <laughs> it, it, I, I would be amazed if that was the same character. Be, <laughs> if Twin Peaks is in the Stargate universe, I would love that. It is It is impossible. That's a season three spoiler for folks. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, but yeah, uh, 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 uh and he, he, Brick, uh, his father comes, I think, more in later episodes. But right now, he's just kind of a weird remote figure that doesn't seem to really engage with the scene much at all, which, you know, is the military father trope. Uh, but, I mean, it, you're right. It, it, it's, it's also his cease. Even his deadpan delivery, it's not... It's not dull acting. There's a layer there, but you never quite know what it is until later. So, like, there's something with this guy, but he comes across as like, "Nope, I'm just super steady." It, it, um, it reminds me, of course, back to Doctor Who. It reminds me a bit of the Brigadier, Brigadier Stewart. Is like he's you should not be that calm in these weird circumstances, and the fact that he is is in and of itself weird. <laughs> well, Alistair was like the best of us. Yes, but like. <clears throat> He has seen so much, and to kind of just go, oh yeah, he, this guy who's my sacrificer just changed his face. Okay, let's just roll with that. And it's like you should be freaking out now. It's like, nope, Alistair Stewart does not do that. And and Corporal Briggs, what's his rank? General Briggs, Corporal Briggs, uh, Major Major Briggs, um, is the same way. It's like he, all this stuff happening around him. He's just like, well, son, I hope you're still doing good in school, and then goes off. And it's like what? <laughs> I want to take into the my momentary Doctor Who digression as you did this and discuss the fact that Brigadier Alistair Lethbridge Stewart retired, shot at a devil, a, <clears throat> a literal devil that the Seventh Doctor didn't know what to do with. Pulled a gun and went, hmm, this isn't good. Bam! Unfazed. And even better, that is not the first time he shot at a devil. <laughs> it's in fact the second. <laughs> I mentioned that one because it worked. <laughs> yeah, that is yeah. why I mentioned that one. All right. Oh, back God. to Twin Peaks. Alistair Lippert, so, so great. Um, uh, Adam Newman, Audrey, we're I was so excited I, by that. I, th- I think we need to talk about Audrey. Um, uh, no, because Audrey no, no. is before is Audrey, cu- though. Okay, we should talk. This is actually the log lady. Oh, you're back to the log lady. Okay, because the um, the log lady when they finally show up at her house. One of the things she says is that you're late. You're supposed to have been here two days ago, but that's your oh, problem. Right. Mm-hmm. So that even infers that like whatever her log had seen and she's translating for them, it told her about it days ago and that Cooper's dream and investigation is going slower than it should be for what they need to succeed at doing. Right. Uh, so again, it, it's the, from a mystery perspective, having a random character never established for show up and just give you information is bad writing, but it's perfect writing for a soap opera. Soap operas constantly just introduce characters randomly. Usually because they have a high turnover in casting, frankly, because it's grueling to work on soap opera. And since we're, we are running a little long and I think we're trying to like get through some stuff and the next episode is going to be important. Uh, I want to at least mention that this episode also then goes and undercuts Leo completely by having Hank come in and yep. kick the crap out of Leo, like hands down with no problems and establishes a new evil force. that's like in the town 
that is scarier than whatever menace Leo brought. Right. We replaced the cartoonishly evil uh, villain with a much more nuanced villain. Uh, and it's also kind of nice to see Leo get his cup puppets. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, I just, uh, I, it, it doesn't really come up in the last episode, but just uh, since this is kind of peak content warning, Audrey. Um, yeah, like uh, frankly, this episode is, is a lot of what I did the content warning in the, <laughs> the previous episode is because we have not only two underage women who are selling a service sexually, but then we have a third underage woman who's supposedly trying to seduce a government agent uh, and Audrey doesn't get, I don't want to say it doesn't get better. Um, that, that is very much her arc. Um, uh, you get into the teenage women discovering that their sexuality can be used as a weapon is very much a, a, a trope in the story beat. Um, it can be done sensitively. This is 1991. So it isn't, but uh, it is not invalid to have uh, women using their sexuality as a weapon as a trope. It's just the way this show handles it and the way this show relentlessly handles it can be a bit much if you're sensitive to that kind of information, that kind of topic. Much out, she got her job at the perfume counter. Yes, she basically takes it and implies that, hey, if you don't give it to me, I'm going to uh, say that you raped me. Uh, and that's, that's a lot. So this episode is, if you're not into that stuff, this episode is going to make or break you, frankly. It so. is near essential watching, though, for the series, but it yeah. has a lot of all the content things that we discussed. Yep. And we want to make sure that people understand that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, last evening, go through this real quick. Uh, uh, James and Donna find a tape in Jacoby's office. Uh, Jacoby starts a heart attack after being attacked by unseen assailants while waiting for, quote unquote, Laura. Uh, James, Donna, and Maddie listened to Laura's tape, discovering that Laura was attracted to Leo despite knowing he was homicidal. At One-Eyed Jacks, Cooper poses as a drug financier and hires Jacques for a job, allowing him to be arrested on American soil after he brags about having sex with Laura the night in the murders. That was the point I mentioned earlier. Leland, having heard that Jacques is a suspect, suffocates him. Ben signs the deal with the development projects, which is the ongoing plot for the whole season. Uh, Hank calls Catherine where he discovers Josie stole the ledger, telling her the ledger's at the mill. This is the fake ledger or the real ledger. I mentioned the two ledgers earlier. Leo ambushes Shelly and ties her up at the mill, lighting the fire. Catherine arrives and frees Shelly, but it's unclear where they escape. Cliffhanger one. Bobby tips off the police and James is arrested for cocaine possession. Cliffhanger two. Hank shoots Leo to cover up the evidence. Cliffhanger three. Lucy, Adding's girlfriend, reveals she's pregnant. Cliffhanger four. So Audrey's horror, her first client at One Eye Jacks is her father, Cliffhanger 5. Cooper finds a secret letter from Audrey, but is shot by Unseen Son before he can read it, Cliffhanger 6. Just a few and cliffhangers. This is Chris Claremont X Men writing. <laughs> and I love every second of it. <laughs> it is. It's the I'm going to throw, because this is this feels like. I'm going to be off the book soon, so I'm going to leave the next writer with so many goddamn cliffhangers they have to write themselves out. <laughs> it's Star Trek Next Generation Season 2 yes. cliffhanging. Yes, yes. It's the, not my problem, you deal with it. <laughs> I also think this is the only episode of the show that Frost ever directed, if I remember right. Okay. There, there, there's definitely a, I mean, if it wasn't clear from the summary, um, a much faster paced episode than some of the other ones. 
because not only is a lot happening, but there's a lot of cutting between subplots in a way. Most episodes, generally, with except for the Cooper, Cooper's kind of the framing device for the whole show, but usually a subplot comes in, they devote time to that subplot, that subplot ends, and then more or less, we don't talk about it again until next episode. Uh, this one's much more cutting back and forth between. Um, because part of that is because a lot of these subplots are now starting to touch on each other and, and intermix, uh, which again is good season ending soap opera dynamic is that we establish them and they start to, then we blend them together and then those branch off form new subplots. So uh, one of the things I think we forgot to mention for episode six, so is that, or we may have mentioned offhandedly, is where I think that's where Maddie first shows up. And Maddie is Laura's identical cousin. Oh, yes. Right. Played by Cheryl Finn, the same actress. Right. Uh, she has brown hair as opposed to blonde hair. Uh, With big glasses. Big, big glasses. glasses. Like, again, cap- capture the sun and make laser beam sized glasses. And she is uh, meek and mild and bookish. Nothing like Laura. Um, and again, like, it's the fact that this is her first job is actually really good because she manages to portray the two kinds of character very well. And one of the things that we've sort of glossed over also is in the background of all this, James and Donna have been Scooby-Dooing it, trying to figure out who Laura's killer is. But they've also started their own budding relationship, even though Laura died uh, two days ago. But James and Donna are kind of in a relationship now. Right. And when Maddie shows up, James suddenly has eyes for Maddie also. So this was sort of our love triangle that was supposed to get all the the youngsters in it to see these like three very attractive young white people doing stuff. While we had it, the mystery and everything else to get the older audience. Right. And it's not even worth mentioning because so much is happening in this episode. Like, I mean, it, it is a subplot that goes on, but I mean, it, it, it kind of reminds me of like when we were talking about Smallville, where like there's a point where the romance subplots feel like they're almost perfunctory and uh, it, it's kind of getting drowned out in the noise of the, the show that everyone clearly wants to make. Uh, so, I mean, like, yeah, the gene, uh, Maddie becomes more interesting in season two. Uh, but right now you're right. It's kind of this <laughs> weird subplot that's happening here that just kind of doesn't really, it, it, it exists, but also it's very kind of just to throw up clues that get delivered into Cooper's subplot. And then Cooper carries the ball and goes for it. It's really what happens with them for like several episodes. Why we haven't talked about it because there's not much happening there, frankly. But this is also part of the problem with Lynch's approach, where if Lynch liked you or your vibe, he would add you into the show. And the show is like a number one hit show, but it is bloated with cast members. Yes. Even soap operas that have large cast members have a similar issue that there are so many things going on. You can't properly serve all those actors and actresses in a meaningful manner. So you have people that are left to the side. And if something is really popular, that is what they'll focus on. And even more, that character gets pushed further to the background. Yeah. um, uh, That's why soap operas notoriously have lots of just dangling subplots never get resolved. Um, uh, But also it's why they have lots of characters who get killed off or leave town or whatever it is to rotate the cast and just give it some more variety. Because you're right. This is – there's just too many people on the show at this point. I I will say that it does largely manage to balance them, but – it's good to point out that James Donna and Maddie are, are, are a casualty of this because there's just so many more interesting characters to look at in the show. Even James more so next season. Um, I will, I do want to talk though. We talked about the development deal. Um, so the development deal subplot thus far has been some Swedish people came in, in the movie. Uh, they were going to develop development project here. They were scared off both by the murder and by Audrey. 
Uh, and so in between episodes, they have now reached out to some Icelanders and Icelanders have come into to, to the hotel and are now signing a deal. I used to work at CCP, which is a video game company owned by Icelanders. And I want to say the Icelanders being portrayed in this show are 100% accurate. <laughs> they, <laughs> they will sing at the drop of a hat. They do drink like fish. Um, uh, my experience with, I mean, that's the video game industry, obviously, but I mean, like, uh, one time we went a company retreat uh, to a, a resort in Morocco and we drank them out of booze. So, I mean, they, it is when, when Cooper was like, yeah, they just constantly sing all the time. And, they, and it's like, yep, yeah, that, 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 that tracks. So <laughs> you've just added Iceland to my place to go for vacation now. Thank you. It's, it's a wild experience. Um, so when, when, when Cooper was complaining about Icelanders, I'm like, oh yeah, no, that, 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 that feels familiar. Um, uh, but, uh, t- let's see what, uh, we talked about Jacques. Um, oh no, we haven't. Well, I mean, uh, it, it was interesting. Again, we talk about the, the Canada America thing, like the whole luring Jacques over so that Cooper can arrest him. Uh, let's, but, let's talk about the, e- the illegality of what just happened there. Well, yes. Cooper, Cooper in disguise and trapping someone in a country where he has no jurisdiction is a bit of a problem. Yes. Taking FBI money. Off the books to go and gamble it. Let's like oh, break right. to go gamble it yes. in disguise to entrap someone. Just like mushrooming out of different illegal actions he's taking throughout the course of this. <laughs> Up till now, Cooper also keeps talking about maybe wanting to settle in Twin Peaks. And as I was watching it, even the first time around, I was like, you know what? You probably should really get out of the FBI and maybe like settle in that <laughs> town because you can't uphold the law. And so many laws is broken throughout the entire course of it by the sheriff, by the entire police department, and they're all in on it. They all go and do it, and it has a very gung-ho feeling. They even get Ed, who's a member of the Bookhouse Boys, we haven't out, I don't think we mentioned either, yeah. sort of like a in-town gang that James and Ed and some other people are part of, are all part of like this shenanigans scheme to capture. Shenanigal is, is amazing. I love that word. It doesn't exist, but it exists now. I'm a writer. It's what I do. I make up things. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so like Jacques is, as I understand it, because again, there's so much is happening. Jacques is like Leo's right hand guy. And so Cooper's trying to basically go up the food chain to, to get, to, to get enough on Jacques to flip him, to get something on Leo. Cause he thinks Leo's the murderer. I think that's what the overall plan here is. You realize, all right, what what we have so far. I don't know if you put this together yet. And I'm just going to tell you. We've got the one-armed man right. from The Fugitive. We've got three men who are all part of a crime organization. Almost. And so we have Jacques here, who is the third man. Uh, or technically, Hank could be the third man. Would make more sense in that. Uh, That's right. There. These are all... Older movies and TV series that Lynch or Frost likely watched and loved and put into the show. And your worst part is, like, you're probably right. That's probably 100% intentional. Uh, 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 they, they probably did that explicitly. Especially the one-armed man, because the entire premise of The Fugitive is he's constantly chasing the one-armed man and can never catch him. Right. Yep. I'll be here all uh, week, folks. Uh, Keep um, your writers. We haven't talked about uh, 
Hank and Catherine much, uh, but that's another. It's it's it, again it starts off as the oh it's it's the henpeck you know, Hank was the guy at the very beginning of the show is the henpecked husbands and a shrill wife but there's 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 more depth there, uh, particularly um, the relationship they have with Josie because Josie, for all intents and purposes, looks like she's trying to actually make this mill legit. Um, but the dynamic seems to be that the mill is going to lose money if they go legit. So Catherine's been basically cooking the books to keep the mill active. And so that's kind of the tension they're having uh, is that Josie's starting to realize, okay, I can't actually do this legitimately uh, because the mill won't make sense. Uh, and so there's kind of weird crime drama thing happening here. Uh, and it's just in the middle of all of this. So do, do you know the relationship between Josie and Catherine at all like i know you've seen it. i don't know if you've like seen twin peaks all the way through i can't remember i know that you I, haven't watched it religiously how i have no no not not all the way through so josie was married to Catherine's brother and Catherine's brother like died and so oh. that's why josie sort of inherited the mill and that's why they're all living together and pete okay. was sort of like a, a lower class lumberjack who married up to Catherine. but oh, pete, not hank, hank Hank <laughs> uh, went to prison because he accidentally supposedly hit uh, like um, a person that doesn't have a hit a a bum or someone on the street. And so he was put in jail for that. But in reality, it is likely that Hank killed Josie's husband slash Catherine's brother. So Josie inherited the lumber mill amongst his other shady dubious dealings and he killed that other random person as cover for having done the other murder which is why he and Josie are in whatever sort of weird crime dynamic they have okay. while he also has one with someone else and all right layer on top of layer of convolution well I mean, but I mean this 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 points to two things we talked about was like one this cast is so goddamn big um but two this show isn't really about Laura Palmer <laughs> <laughs> right, none Never of that was. has a damn thing to do with the Laura Palmer. Uh, but that is with all of this because again, I, I, you're right. It's Pete, not Hank. I screwed it up. Um, uh, but like all of this is is just a spaghetti of of, of character. And, and again, peak when when the soap opera is working well, you don't care anymore. That you, you follow these threads, and I was, I'm invested in all of these things. I mean, I, I'm not. I didn't have all that context, but. It's like yeah, clearly there's something going on. It's like yeah, I want to you know like I want to see you know how how the, this Pete Catherine Josie thing kind of balances out. Um, and Hank kind of coming into town midway through the season and stirring things up was was again a perfect soap opera trope of like hey, we have this new actor, just bring him in. Um, but that goes back to the original premise: is that the who killed Laura Palmer was your hook to bring you in, right. and it's the stories and the lives here that keep you coming back for it. Right. Yep. So do you think the actual, we'll come back to this in a second. I'm just curious. Do you think the actual premise of never telling you the killer would have worked? Uh, no. Um, because I think, uh, a lot of shows will say, Oh, the, the hook to bring you in, uh, doesn't need to be resolved because once you have the audience, then you can keep stringing them along. Um, I, I, I feel like, if you have a high level hook, you have to resolve that. You could then build from that if you need to, like there's another layer. Uh, but like, um, 
let's take the 13 ghosts of Scooby-Doo, right? At some point in time, you should see 13 fucking ghosts, and you don't. And that's a problem. Uh, so Twin Peaks is just as bad as 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo. That's what I'm saying. Wow. <laughs> no. So. Um, uh, I mean, I, I, understand the, I understand the logic of, you know, you need a strong hook to get people in. I, I agree with that. But uh, there does need to be a payoff. And the prisoner's hook was, why, why is number six in here and who's number one? And neither of those were satisfactorily answered. Uh, Patrick McGowan disagrees with me, but he's dead, so I don't care. Uh, this show does try to address all of its top level hooks, but only because CBS kind of forced them to. Yeah. As as we are running long, I will not ber- berate you with a whole bunch of other questions, but I will. I do want to point out that Catherine was called, and she goes to the mill before it explodes. And one of my favorite scenes in this, and it's so small, is Shelley's there, which you know, automatically. Uh, implicates leo why right. is his wife in the mill that burnt down right. all of the story genius level planning and catherine stops looks at her asks her who she is and has no idea but then debates whether or not she is worth saving and how that would benefit or mm-hmm. hamper her future plans that is amazing that actress conveys it quickly i'm not even sure if it's in the script but it is right there in her acting and you see it and then she frees her and Shelly is too grateful to even really realize what happened. No, it was that scene where I realized, oh no, Catherine's a crime boss. Okay, now I get what, what her role in the show. Because <laughs> like, it's, it's super clear. Um, and, and tied to that, another scene of love, we talked about Imitation of Love. Um, when Hank shoots Leo and he falls against the wall and, and, and slumps down and seems to die, simultaneously on Imitation to Love, the big villain that's been going along also gets shot and dies. And it's like, it's like, it's like at this point in time, Invitation Love is not even bothering to hide its role in the show. <laughs> like, this is what I'm here. This is what we're here to do. We're here to, to counterpoint what's going on. It's sad that it then kind of stopped existing after this episode, but it's great that it ends on this note of like, yes, the, the villains in both shows die simultaneously effectively. And it's hilarious. <laughs> um, the, the other two of the last three big hooks, Lucy's in fact pregnant. Andy doesn't yep. take it well which mm-hmm. we'll get a lot of that next season. Yep. And the Audrey realization about her father being associated with one-eyed jacks, like right. all cemented in, bringing his own la- layer of horror on top of all everything else. Right. And we didn't really, I guess, go into it a lot, but you get Leland killing someone this episode. Full-on camera watching him smother Jacques oh, yes. right. in yes. bed. In the hospital. Right. Because he thinks Shock killed Laura. Um, which shows Leland's continued decline. Uh, and, and again, Leland's fascinating to me because like, on one level, he's the only character that's acting in a way that makes sense because he's the only one who characters actually showing grief over this woman being killed. But well, on the other hand, his grief is so catastrophically melodramatic that, like, no human grieves this way. <laughs> Sarah's also showing grief, though, but her grief is somewhat different than Leland's. True, and true. she also has other trauma that is going on that she's trying to figure out what, what is. And she has keeps having visions. Right, which we have actually not touched on because they haven't quite come up very often. But, yes, she's also having visions, which also are true, but not quite true. 
Uh, and then, yeah, uh, Cooper shot. There's just a quick <laughs> <laughs> that was the most offhanded one. Oh, <laughs> they shoot Cooper. Eh, whatever. <laughs> I, well, I mean, and that's the worst thing. Is like, on the one hand, it's because Cooper's the framing device, it makes sense to have his cliffhanger at the ends. But like, so many people get shot in this episode, Chris. It's like, oh yeah, and also Cooper got shot. I guess Leo got shot, and someone else, Daniel, <laughs> burned to death. It's like Cooper getting shot is almost like, well, of course he does because that's where this episode's going, apparently. But. He comes back from a successful raid of illegal activity in the name of the FBI and justice to order warm milk room service up to his room. He's sniffing a letter that has Audrey's perfume that he's going to wondering what that what interesting things that'll bring and just randomly opens a door when it knocks like room service shows up in less than a minute. I would believe that. And it's so goddamn random. I mean, but again, Peak so Bob, right? It's like uh, someone comes to the door and just shoots you and then walks away. Sure. That's a thing that could totally happen, you know? I want I want to stress to all to all of our listener <laughs> is that in the future, I don't support ever doing this, but if you're in a, a zombie apocalypse or some monster apocalypse and you're having to like fight other evil entities, always double tap. <laughs> you first shot and then you shoot two in the head just to be certain. Like Come on, I've played all the Resident Evil games and everything else. You just don't shoot them and leave. Then they're just going to get up mad. you got to, like, double tap. I, spoilers for the rest of the season, but I will say Leland is the most successful murderer in this entire episode. Because <laughs> he sticks around and makes sure the job is done. <laughs> <laughs> he, he also used a pillow, so it wasn't like a lot of running off after that. It was... Right, right. He, he he stayed and committed to the gig. Everybody, I would expect like, more from casual. Hank. <laughs> I expect professionalism from Hank. But it's like, yeah, like Hank just shoots and walks away. Leo ties up his girlfriend's like, oh, I'll just screw off. It's fine. I'm sure I'm sure they'll burn down just fine. Um, whoever shoots also, Cooper, you know. Uh, also, say never ever tie anyone up and leave them on train tracks. No, no you tie no. them up, you put them on the train track, and you hide to watch the train do its job. Like right, professionalism at all times. So, so what we have learned is that Leland is the best murderer in this entire show. The grieving father. Final thoughts. Any, uh, <laughs> I, I have so many and we don't have time for them, but we have more episodes of Twin Peaks coming up. Uh, I would say the biggest thing is like this is going to be the best season of Twin Peaks. I will give that spoiler right now. For coherency, for coherency and plot and consistency, this is the best season. Um, season two goes in different directions. Uh, because we also on, have. I, I, I think this. Uh, we we talked about this. I'm frankly in the prisoner too, where it's like the prisoner is the same problem, right? Like the first few episodes are really, really strong, and then Canada starts falling apart near the ends. Um, I think I got much of the prisoner also. The back half of Twin Peaks has some good moments, and it's it certainly they're, they're, it's worth watching. But I, I agree with you. Um, based on what I've seen so far, season one definitely seems to be the strongest. And that's like that's a lot of it's because the network does force them to reveal who the killer is next season. Mm -hmm. Lynch walks away early on and comes back right at the end. So you have a lot of frost in those writers in control of eighty percent of season two. 
and it is not that great. There's some high points. There are a lot of low points. But the beginning and end with Lynch and Frost together are magic. So what are we going to watch of that then? We're going to start off with season two, episode one. May the giant be with you. <laughs> we will shift over to the third most important episode of the entire season of the entire series. Uh, season two, episode seven, Lonely Souls. And wrap it up with season two, episode 22, Beyond Life and Death. And if people wanted to talk to you about Twin Peaks or really anything else, where are they find you online? You could find me in the Dark Who Discord. We just had a new member join. Yay! Yay! Uh, you could find me still on Twitter, on Mastodon, or go to my website, darkwhostudios.com, if you want to buy some interesting things that I wrote with a lot of made-up words. <laughs> what about you? Um, you can find me uh, on Twitter as Pugsteady. It's P-U-G-S-T-E-A-D-Y. It's also my website, Pugsteady.com. Or if you want to check out uh, more of my creator-owned work, realmsofpugmire.com. Uh, otherwise, yeah, you can also find me on the Greater Hue, Darker Hue, Greater Hue? I don't know. One of those discords. I would take that too. Beyond Hue! <laughs> we, we, we have trends in the color. Um, <laughs> find me in the Darker Hue Discord. Uh, and uh, with that, um, we will see you next week as we talk about Eh, more Twin Peaks. I'll be seeing you.